You are listening to Love Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Brunswick, Maine. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Here are some highlights from this week's program. With the young people, uh, um, the Portland Public School is very diverse in terms of uh, racial uh, and language and uh, religion. So we have uh, kids who are coming from many different backgrounds. It helped them uh, connect better with the, with the students. They got involved socially with the students because they understood the different cultures. Uh, so I think it was a plus uh, for the family here to, uh, to, to grow up in Maine and, and to have that background for, for us and for our kids. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to Love Maine Radio, show number 241, Intercultural Understanding airing for the first time on Sunday, May 1st, 2016. How can we promote understanding between cultural groups in Maine? Whether our family has been here for generations or whether we have just arrived, it is incumbent upon us to learn how to get along and celebrate people of all backgrounds. Today, we speak with Pius Ali, founder of the Maine Interfaith Youth Alliance, and Gerard and Annie Kilajian, founders of the Armenian Cultural Association of Maine. Thank you for joining us. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland. Easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaMe.com for more information. Our next guest is well known within the community and an individual that I've been interested in talking to for quite some time. This is Pius Ali, who is a youth and community engagement specialist in the Muskie School of Public Service, where he's working on a project called Portland Empowered. Pius has spent the better part of his career focusing on engaging youth and creating dialogue across cultural, ethnic, socioeconomic, and faith-based groups. He is the founder and executive director of the Maine Interfaith Youth Alliance. He is the co-director and co-founder of King Fellows, a Portland-based youth group dedicated to creating meaningful opportunities for youth leadership and civic engagement based on the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Pius is a member of the Portland's Board of Education, and he is the first African-born American and Muslim to be elected to a public office in Maine. Thanks for coming in today. Thank you for having me. It is really a great honor for us to have you because you you do a lot of things. You're in a lot of places. You you work very hard. You've you've spent a lot of time doing the things that you feel passionate about. So I I do my best. Well, tell me about tell me about your background. What what was it about your family and the way that you were raised and your education that caused you to become so interested in these topics? Uh, well, uh, that's interesting um, because, yes, um, the way I was raised, uh, but not necessarily my um, my uh, education or uh, professional background. Um, I was raised in a household uh, where um, my family, uh, which is my mother's family, uh, my grandfather and uh, um, his uh, brothers and cousins um, have um, a house where uh, 
other people bring their kids to come and live with us. Um, um, it's a madrasa, which means uh, a place that young people learn how to, um, it's like a Sunday school, but that goes on um, throughout the week, where kids learn how to read the Quran, uh, the Muslim um, holy book, uh, learn um, um, learn how to write, and a couple of other things, um, um, religiously and culturally. So I grew up in my own household where uh, we share it with uh, kids coming from the community. And uh, um, yeah, so that is how I was raised. Um, I went to a regular school, um, public school back in Ghana. Um, and uh, when I graduated from high school, um, I took a job, I took, I took courses um, in, um, then they call it, um, um, it's like a journalism school. But I specifically did a photojournalism. So I, I work with newspapers and uh, um, magazines um, and did a couple of uh, uh, photographs uh, for many different entities back in Ghana before I migrated here. I did live in New York uh, for two years and then I came to Maine. Um, since I've been to Maine, I've worked um, um, with young people. Uh, I joke to people that I stumble on the job. I wasn't looking to save any or create anything for anybody. I was looking for a job like any um, other immigrant out there. Uh, I was looking for a job that I will make a box and um, take care of my then wife and son. And then uh, uh, one thing led to the other. Um, I learned so much uh, from the young people that I work with. Um, I have a, um, a funny story that I share with people. I used to work for a program. My very first job with young people was uh, with um, an organization then called um, um, not, not Opportunity People Regional Opportunity Pro People Regional Opportunity Program, um, and they had this program called Peer Leader, uh, as in peer and leader. And uh, uh, when I first applied for the job. I didn't get it uh, because I didn't have a background in social work and I didn't have a degree in social work. Uh, someone else was hired. And the person um, happened to be the second on the list of many applicants after a series of interviews. So um, I didn't get the job. And then I think a month or a month and a half or two months down the road, uh, the person who was hired um left because she had a job somewhere that was paying more or that is more what she wanted to do than what this job was so i i got called back by the director of the program and uh, um, um she said hey she called my home number and left a message and said hey um if you are still interested in that job um call me back and i called back and uh, uh so the story is, I just gave this background so that you would know uh, where I was coming from. Um, my first time at the job uh, was uh, at Riverton Park. And uh, um, the young people that I was going to work with, uh, most of whom are immigrants like me, um, some of them are from Africa, some of them from different parts of the world. And so I took it on myself thinking that, oh, this is going to be an easy job um these kids um we have the same background some of them are muslims and it goes on and on and on the similarities are more bigger than the not the non-similarities between me and this group of young people and i will be sitting in the corner and nobody would talk to me uh the initial uh uh connection was not there because i don't have no idea what i was doing um, um i'm a people person but i have not done any work with young people so 
I was there for a few weeks and then I started connecting with these young people. Uh, but also I was coming back, I was coming from the background uh, which uh, was uh, culturally conservative um, uh, from how I was raised. So I was looking at these young people like uh, when I speak, um, no one speaks, I'm, I'm the adult in the room. Uh, but after my weird interaction with them where you know, they're like uh, well, you don't know what you're talking about uh, we, I, I, I learned they forced me I watched my colleague I was working with someone I watched the way she engaged them and I stepped back and looked at the way I was engaging these young people and uh, uh, they forced me to do f self reflection uh, look at the way I do things and uh, uh, they and learn uh, that uh, no, uh, the way I was raised is quite different from how you engage young people here. The principles, are, the basic principles of raising young people or working with young people are the same, but the way you engage um, um, is a little bit um, different. So uh, that was my first uh, uh, baptism, if there's no, uh, if that's a word to use, into working with young people. Uh, and since then, I've made it a point. Uh, to learn as much as I can um, whenever I'm working with young people because uh, they have a lot uh, to share. Um, um, and uh, most of the time, as adults, don't look for that peace. Uh, we want them to just listen to us and uh, do what we say they should do. Tell me about the King Fellows program, the program that you co-founded with Rachel Talbot Ross. The King um, Fellows uh, Program is uh, um, a program uh, for young high school students um, of color uh, from um, Greater Portland. About 85% of them are from Portland, uh, but some of them are from South Portland, um, a few of them are from Westbrook, and, uh, and similarly about 95 uh, or 98% of them are all uh, students of Portland public schools. Uh, but because some are from South Portland, they go to school in South Portland, or one or two go to uh, private schools here in Portland. So uh, it was the idea of, uh, um, it came about uh, when I think it's about 2010 or 2011, during the Martin Luther King weekend holidays, um, uh, the NWACP have a group of youth, and uh, um, the main Interfaith Youth Alliance have a group of youth. And I've done some work with Seas of Peace. I'm still part of the what we call uh, the Greater Seas of Peace family. Um, uh, and so we have students from the Seas of Peace group. And uh, during the Martin Luther King holiday, these kids and some other kids who are not part of anything, will come together and do projects. And so during this project, we call them King Fellows. Uh, but it was becoming a little bit too all over the place, and uh, we wanted to contain it and turn it into an actual youth group so that when they come, um, there's no, oh, I'm this, I'm that, or I'm this, and uh, it could be um, more of a um, um, structured program where young people can be part of it and uh, um, have this solid uh, vision and go and uh, yeah you also do work with Portland Empowered through right. the Muskie School right and that's a slightly you're doing something slightly different there right so uh, Portland Empowered is a project uh, that is funded by Nelime Education Foundation um, which is I think the largest uh, private fo education foundation um, in New England 
and uh, the program is a school reform kind of a program basically what we do is uh, uh, we work with parents who are coming from what we call um, uh, marginalized background uh, parents who do not for whatever reason normally engage the school districts either because the districts have challenges on how to engage them or they don't understand or don't do not have the experience of having engaged school districts uh, and then um, um, the, with the parents I will start with the parents we have a parent group called parent engagement partners and then uh, we have a, a, a youth group a student group called youth engagement partners the parent engagement partners um, um, for the past three for the past year and half to two years have had um, a conversation in different schools in Portland with broader parents uh, on uh, um, um, how to create uh, a meaningful engagement between them and uh, um, Portland Public Schools. And uh, during those conversations, they create um, a form of conversation called Shared Space Cafe, uh, where we joke that everyone is an expert. Um, um, most of the parents um, are coming from um, immigrant background, but it's not an exclusive um, group for immigrant parents uh we have uh, some mainstream parents who may or may not have graduated high school or may not have experience um or may not have a engagement or communications between them and um, um the school system it used to be housed with city of portland's um um, um refugee services and then the foundation wanted an institution or a school or something like that to base it on so uh they asked uh, Muskie School to apply for the grant, and Muskie School did with another organization, but Muskie School got it. And uh, uh, because I was working on the project anyway, they wrote me into the grant, and so I moved to Muskie School with the, um, with a, with a grant. And uh, uh, so the work uh, did not exclusively started from Muskie School. It was started from the refugee services, and then it moved to... Um, Maski uh, School. We did a one-on-one -on -one kind of uh, together information on what are the issues between that demography, what are some of the issues and challenges uh, that they have, um, and uh, um, uh, what came up was conversation, uh, communications. And so uh, we also went on further to do more conversations uh, in different communities that the parents who are involved are coming from and uh, uh, then gather more information and then uh, decided to have what they call the Shared Space Cafe. Uh, yeah, we have a parent, what we call lead parent organizers. The basic idea is uh, um, to come up with certain um, way of communication that will make schools comfortable in um, engaging uh, parents who are coming from that background and also make it very comfortable for these parents. Um, to walk into school districts uh, or their classrooms, their children's classrooms in high school um, um, and talk to the teachers um, without um, um, any reservation. And the whole idea is to make um, high school experience uh, meaningful and also uh, purposeful for um, students. What are some of the issues that you hear from students or from parents um, who are from other countries or have a different religious background and they're trying to interact with a school or a community? What, what types of things come up that you hear about? Well, uh, so I'm going to take off my heart as a, a staff member for um, 
Portland Empowered. Um, I wear so many hats. And I'm also not speaking as a school board member. I'm speaking as me, somebody who does a lot of work um, in the community. Um, uh, I think uh, some of the issues that comes up uh, in my engagement uh, with uh, families um, and uh, uh, students in the community is uh, um, some of the claims that the students or the, some of the families that made are that either there's a language barrier uh, on both sides or misunderstanding or miscommunication of uh, situation. Uh, with the young people, um, um, the Portland Public School is very diverse in terms of um, racial um, and language and uh, religions. We have uh, kids who are coming from many different backgrounds. Um, the staff at Portland schools uh, do their best uh, to understand um, where and who is coming from where. Uh, unfortunately, it's um, 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 it's uh, uh, how do you say it? It's a tall list of things that you have to learn, and um, so. There's bound to be um, somebody being called names and and um, or somebody being referred to as this or that uh, by other students who may not necessarily even know what they are saying. Uh, yeah, so there are situations like that. Not specifically, you hear stories here and there. Um, yeah, um, uh, with the um, um, I'm a Muslim, so I have a. Um, um, I talk to people a lot in the Muslim community, in the immigrant Muslim communities, and. Uh, um, the recent um, um, na at the national st the recent national platform political rhetoric uh, did yes um, increase um, or created um, um, a few instances here in Portland where uh, there's a parent um, a woman from Iraq who was in at a bus stop. She didn't specifically said which bus stop where uh, somebody um, was talking to her and the person look at her and speak on her face um, and this one doesn't speak any English so she doesn't even know what to say and uh, there was an instant where someone was sitting at a waiting room in one of the big hospitals in Portland and uh, another patient uh, uh, started yelling at her and telling her to go back where she come from because uh, her people don't like Americans what she doing here um, in both situations these people don't necessarily speak good English so they didn't know how to um, react. Uh, and it's unfortunate that uh, both situations happen to women uh, based on the way they look because uh, I can walk down the street. Um, um, yes, I'm a black man. Um, someone will see there's a black man and probably say, oh, he's an immigrant. But the person can know whether I'm uh, what I worship or what religion or what's my faith uh, based on the color of my skin or how I look. Um, and also, I don't dress specifically like any... Um, I don't wear any religious um, edifice that shows that this person is a Muslim or a Jew or a Christian or whatever it is. Yeah. So it's difficult for Muslim women and children. I, I just think about if I was, as a woman, if I was in another country standing at a bus stop and somebody spit in my face and said something to me and I didn't even understand them, I can't even imagine how that would make me feel. Right. Uh, it's uh, um, And there's been an instance where um, a young woman was at a gas station here in Portland. I think that's about a year ago. And uh, uh, so another person who was buying gas, he happens to be um, a veteran. He's not from Portland. Um, he's actually not from Maine. He's from Connecticut or somewhere. And uh, uh, he's been to Iraq, and he kept calling her all sorts of names. He said he was going to kill her. And the gas station attendants have to literally... Um, hold on the door and tell him that he's, he was not welcome there um, 
the good thing was that he's already finished paying for his gas so there's no need for him to get into the building um they took his license plate number and handed it over to the police and uh it came out that um it, the car doesn't even belong to him it's for his dad and uh, um, um he lives in connecticut he was a veteran um i don't know how that case ended but um, um the police were working on it at the time that i know of it so um yeah it's difficult and it's so complicated because you have on one side people who may be refugees who right. have their own set of painful circumstances right and then you have people who are veterans or have their set of their background and their experience and there's there's enough pain for there's enough pain to go around right but we all have to coexist we all have to live yeah here together so how do we make that happen well uh try to understand each other i believe i'm a firm believer that um um speaking to people irrespective of who they are or what your beliefs are uh, try at least to reach out to that person uh talk to that person understand where that person is um, coming from um 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 yeah uh having that conversation opens a lot um uh, of doors and a lot of opportunities uh for us as humans uh to live uh peacefully next to each other irrespective of what we believe or what we lean on um i believe that we all are looking for the same thing which is uh everybody wants to live peacefully everybody wants to raise families they want to have a safe home uh have food on their table and go about their lives without being disturbed or interrupted by someone else so um Having a conversation with an open mind to know that, um, yes, you have the right to leave, but other people also have the right to leave without uh, you imposing your beliefs or the way of your life on them um, to each uh, their way of life. Um, so far as my way of life is not getting on your way, I believe that um, you don't have to force me to live the way you live. And then we all live in peace. Unfortunately, it doesn't work like that in reality why did you decide to come to Maine it's a long story um, I didn't come to Maine to live in Maine I, I'm joking I came I came uh, with uh, uh, I have a friend who came to school here he came to Maine College of Art and uh, I visited him a couple of times and um, I was going to move to um, Albany in New York I have friends who say oh you can come work here and blah 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 and then uh, um, I came here and uh, um, to stay for a week or something like that. And I met my ex-wife, and I decided not to go anywhere. So, how has it worked out for you? Well, Maine is a great place. I will say that um, I'm very. Um, um, oh, I can talk for Portland because I've already lived in Portland. I've lived a little bit in Cape Elizabeth, but not enough for me to talk for uh, or on behalf, even though it's a great place, but I cannot speak for uh, Cape Elizabeth. So I can speak for Portland. Um, I, I think Portland is a great place, um, uh, great people. Um, um, I have uh, um, experimented with many different ideas, and I got nothing but support. I have uh, grown into a different person that I was from when I arrive in this country, um, I, I have easily uh, transitioned from 
being somebody who works in the media, uh, who was a photo journalist or a photographer, uh, into somebody who does social work, um, work with young people and uh, work in the community. Um, um, and I've had tons of support in everything that I have uh, I've done. Uh, so um, I can say nothing but um, that I think it's working good and um, grateful for all the support and all the people that have engaged on that journey. Actually, I think Sunday was exactly 14 years since I moved to Maine. And uh, um, it's been nothing but, um, yeah, there's been some challenges, ups and downs. Um, um, but um, it's been nothing but um, um, exciting. And I'm looking forward to do more. Pius, how can people find out about Portland Empowered or about the King Fellows Program? Both of them have a uh, King Fellows have a Facebook page, and actually King Fellows is having um, a youth summit uh, next week. Um, it's not next week on January sixteenth as part uh, as part of the Martin Luther King Day celebrations. Uh, King Fellows is having uh, a youth summit at um, from one to five. Um, we're gonna have the mayor and uh, um, um, the superintendent of schools, some school board members, and hopefully some city councillors. And they're gonna talk about uh, young black um, students and the challenges that they face in the schools and in the communities with the mayor. And uh, uh, both have Facebook page. Um, Kim Fellows have a Facebook page that is uh, public on Facebook. And then uh, the Portland Empowered um, have a, a Facebook page, which is for the whole program called Portland Empowered, but you'll see the youth part, and then you'll see the, the parent part. We post stuff and we have a, a couple of uh, um, blips about on both Facebooks, have a short blips on what the groups are about. Well, I appreciate the work that you've done here in Portland and for the state of Maine. Um, and I thank you for coming in to speak with me today. We've been talking with Pius Ali, who is a youth and community engagement specialist, working on a project called Portland Empowered with the Muskie School Public Service, and who is also the co-director and co-founder of the King Fellows Program, and also a member of the Portland's Board of Education and the first African-born American and Muslim to be elected to a public office in Maine. Thank you so much for sharing your time and your talents and, and your energy. I appreciate uh, it. Thank you for having me. Experience chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, Maine's seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants, The Front Room, The Grill Room, and The Corner Room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch Lobstermen bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit theroomsportland.com. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is Portland's largest gallery and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting work of contemporary Maine artists, and we also host a series of monthly solo shows in our newly expanded space. The current show schedule includes Eric Hopkins, Matthew Russ, Jane Damon, William Crosby, and Ruth Hamill, to name a few. 
please visit our website for complete show details at artcollectormain.com. In the studio with us today, I have uh, two dear friends who I've known for quite a while and are really wonderful people in their own right, so I'm glad I have the chance to finally um, uh, have, have time to speak with them on air. These are Gerard and Annie Kalajian. Um, Gerard is the general manager of the Portland Harbor Hotel, Diamond's Edge Restaurant, and Marina, and the newly opened inn at Diamond Cove on Great Diamond Island. His passion for hospitality began with a hotel management degree from Boston University. Gerard is a first-generation immigrant from Syria. Shortly after settling in Maine in 2000, Gerard and Annie established the Armenian Cultural Association of Maine to promote and preserve their um, Armenian culture. Among events they brought to Portland are lectures by notable authors, accomplished speakers, and Armenian folk dance and music performances. Thanks for coming in, Gerard. Thank you. We also have Annie with us. Annie grew up among the rich culture and diversity of Montreal, Canada. The child of Armenian immigrants from Cairo, Egypt, she was raised with a close sense of family and community her entire life. When she married Gerard Kalajian in July of 1991, her adventure began. After living in Montreal for five years, they made their way first to New Jersey, then finally Portland, Maine. Annie began her career in education in the fashion and design industry in Montreal. Shortly after moving to Maine, she studied and worked in the interior design field. She is currently the owner of Annie K. Designs, LLC, an interior design firm that has created beautiful spaces throughout Maine, Boston, New York, and Los Angeles. After living in Portland, Maine for 16 years and raising two beautiful children, she cannot see herself living anywhere else. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us, Lisa. And I can't really see you guys living anywhere else either because <laughs> you're kind of fixtures in the Portland community. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. We enjoy it very much. Let's talk about um, Montreal, Annie. I'm interested because having been there, you know, a few times now, um, it's really, it's, it's this very artistic and creative and uh, wonderful place that's not that far from Portland, and yet it, it seems very European in some ways. It's very European and very diverse, and growing up in a place like Montreal um, actually grounded me in so many ways to... Um, so many different aspects of whether it be arts or fashion or design or anything else. Um, the people I grew up with, um, this is this is the difference between Portland that we moved into in 2000 and where I grew up was that there was just so much diversity in so many ways, whether it was food, um, I mean, so many different things. Um, and I, I loved growing up there. I loved um, being able to speak my language. I speak Armenian fluently, as does Gerard. And having the Armenian culture and um, family around was a huge part of how I was raised. And that's what we tried to do when we came here. So it must have been interesting to be in Portland and have it be 16 years ago still relatively non-diverse. I guess, I, I mean, you could speak to that, both of you, <laughs> better than me. I think it changed quite a bit. Uh, if you compare it to Montreal, perhaps not, but, you know, the, the Portland we knew 16 years ago was uh, very different what it is now, I, f I feel, and I find it to be a, a lot more diverse. There's a lot more culture, uh, different heritages are coming into the city and making contributions and making their presence known and sharing their culture with everybody else. So I think Portland has come a long way in the last even just 10 years of what we saw when we came in. It's interesting to me that Montreal and Portland are, are similar in some ways. They both are relatively, well, cold climates. Um, 
somewhat metropolitan, um, but Montreal, for some reason, has just attracted a broader range of people to to live there. Is it because it's maybe a, a bigger presence within the general landscape of Canada than Maine, than Portland is? I think it's it's because of it's uh, a little bit of existing cultural diversity. Uh, being French Canadian, part of Montreal's French Canadian, part of it's English speaking, so that makes makes it a little more international. And there has been a lot of migration from different cultures all around the world to Montreal because of the way it is and, and all the cultures that it, that it has, from food to music to uh, theater to everything else. And I think that's what's been uh, attractive. Uh, to immigrants and Canadians in general to go to Montreal. And so Portland is the miniature, I find it a little bit a miniature of that. Uh, it's, it's not to that scale, but yet we have a lot of things that we uh, enjoyed in Montreal that we can uh, have a small taste of it here in Portland. Now. Now we do, yes. Now, yeah. 16 years ago, I don't it feel was it was the less. same. Yeah. Now it's now definitely a lot less. Well, I have to admit that until I think I was in Boston and um, for some reason we were running around Boston and we went into a convention center and we saw that there was an Armenian, I think, convention that was going on down there. And we also saw that there was, um, there's a monument in Boston. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I, I feel like I have some degree of education behind me, but I didn't really know that much about Armenia and what mm-hmm. had happened. And um I wonder if this felt strange to you coming to a country where that just wasn't talked about all that much. Well, it was a little bit strange, but also Armenians in general didn't talk a lot about it growing up. Uh, they, when, when the Armenians moved to different parts of the world after the genocide in 1915, uh, they tried to assimilate, so it wasn't a topic. The genocide itself wasn't a big topic that everybody talked about. Uh, but when I moved to Boston, uh, that was one of the reasons I moved to Boston, is because it was an Armenian community and they were an active community. And uh, that was kind of a piece of home uh, moving into uh, Boston when I went to college. And that kept my Armenian culture alive and actually got me even more interested in it as the time passed. And I graduated and I started working. I started connecting with the, with the culture. So it wasn't a big surprise. It was uh, something that I enjoyed and, and helped me uh, kind of get more, stay connected with my culture even though I moved away from Syria. It seems as though even calling it the Armenian Genocide has really only been, um, has really only taken root with perhaps within the last 10 mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yet it's interesting that other genocides obviously have taken place over the last, well, centuries, mm-hmm. and those have been specifically called that. Correct. Why is that? We're still fighting for that. <laughs> I think it's because of the, in the United States, because of the strategic alliance with Turkey. I think the United States as a, as a government as a whole are uh, reluctant to uh, call it a genocide because they, don't, they feel that they don't want to upset Turkey in a strategic alliance. Uh, I think different states within the United States have recognized it, certainly the state of Maine for the last 15 years they've been uh, recognizing it every year at the state legislature uh, level and many other states do so but as the United States government uh, they have not come around to do that because of the pressures, the political pressure uh, coming from their relationship with Turkey. So how how does that make you feel to know that you're families were impacted by this and it's something that still isn't quite as mainstream as some of the other genocides that are talked about. It is frustrating. Like Annie said, we keep fighting for that. We, we keep trying to get the, uh, the U.S. legislatures to acknowledge it 
and um, it is very frustrating. It's been it's been going on for many many years, and we continue to uh, lobby with the legislatures and uh, explain our story and and ask them to to step forward and call it what it is. But it's it's. Uh, it's been a, a difficult road for Armenians in general uh, not to get recognized as a genocide. Every April 24th, we try. Every, I mean, we try throughout the entire year, but mm -hmm. on April 24th, we try to bring light to it and try to um, get recognized. And unfortunately, so far it hasn't happened, but hopefully it will, federal level. State level, we have recognition. Maine recognizes it. We go up to um, Augusta every April 24th or uh, around that time, whenever it falls during the week. And um, as of last year, I think it was last year, that we had uh, a proclamation that the state of Maine gave us. And mm -hmm. it's wonderful. It's a great feeling, you know, to be recognized on the state level. Because uh, there have been a lot of Armenian community, uh, people in the community here that really contributed throughout their life to the yeah. state of Maine. So. They really it's have. Great to recognize. And what's the significance of April 24th? It's the date of the Armenian Genocide, 19, uh, 1915. Uh, April 24th is where the genocide started uh, at the hands of the uh, Ottoman Turks. Uh, they try to eliminate the Armenian race in, in Turkey, at what the Ottoman Empire at the time. Yeah. So I'm, I'm interested in um, your daughter's experience with Armenia. I know, Annie, you and I were talking about uh, time that she spent over there actually doing some work in, mm -hmm. I believe, the public health field. Yes. Um, Alexandra studied health sciences and um, was very much interested in going to uh, Armenia and serving in some form. And she decided, I think it was August of last year, she went to Armenia for five months and worked for an organization called COAF, uh, it's Children of Armenia Fund, that a very dear friend of ours started. Um, an incredible organization that um, a lot of our friends are part of. But one in general um, who started this um, organization to create, basically um, create entities inside villages where he could help a certain village at a time in whatever capacity was necessary, whether it was building hospitals, schools, and he does so with the help of funding from the diaspora, mostly from the diaspora. And Alexandra, being in the medical field, let's say, um, really wanted to somehow or another get into that um, with co-op. Uh, she ended up working at the office in Yerevan, which is the capital of Armenia, and um, she would go weekly, two or three times a week, to the different villages, help out in whatever way she could. One of the, um, in, you know, we work on so many levels here where, um, you know, whether it's the medical field or, you know, anti-bullying or any, any, any of these fields that actually kind of assimilate together, um, she decided that she wanted to take on, just as an example, um, an anti-bullying campaign in Armenia doesn't exist, does not exist, and it creates anxiety for different kids. So it, you know, it all it's like this domino effect, right? And um, Alexandra was put in charge. Um, this was probably right at the end of her almost coming home um, of this anti-bullying campaign, and 
it was incredible how it was received by these kids in these villages because they never, that was just not something that they even recognized truly. And there's just so much growing that still has to be done in these countries. I mean, you know, I don't want to call it, it's not a third world country, but uh, in so many ways it's so backwards and we're still the diaspora along with the government is trying to push forward so many different aspects of um, whether it be medicine or education or um, government policy. There's just so, so many different aspects of Armenia that we could still help to um, bring to the 21st century, you know. And Alexandra was absolutely loving every second that she was there because she was able to um, give just a little bit of herself to her homeland. And you have to understand, my daughter was born in Montreal. Um, Gerard and I were born in the Middle East, uh, you know, and so her ties to Armenia were not very strong in the sense that we didn't really have family that live in Armenia. We were that those families that had to leave Armenia, our homeland, and um, assimilate into a different country. He, he being in um, Syria and myself in, in Egypt, and um, from there we came here. So we don't really know Armenia. We went three and a half years ago um, to an incredible um, event that a friend of ours hosted, and we were there for two weeks and got to see um, Armenia. And our kids at that time, the message was give back, give back. We were 100 Armenian friends that went and the message was give back to Armenia. Some way or another, give back. This is what we need the diaspora to do. And Alex and uh, you know, even our son Aaron um, really has that goal of some way or another giving back to our homeland. What did it mean to each of you, if you're both Armenian, but Gerard, you're from Syria, and Annie, your family, went to Egypt, mm -hmm. how did that influence the way that you looked at the world and maybe your Armenian culture? How did that influence your families? You know, I think the, uh, the Middle Eastern influence is similar between Syria and Egypt. Um, there's a lot of hospitality, family life, uh, preservation of culture, preservation of language. And um, so our, our families were not very different, uh, Annie's family and my family being from two, two different countries. And, but it did influence in terms of growing up and how we raise our kids to, to make sure that they understand other cultures, they understand where they came from, but also the, what goes on in different cultures. And that gives them a broad understanding of, of uh, different societies in the world. And that also helped them in the public schools in Portland when they grew up because they had the different backgrounds and a little bit of the, little bit of the Armenian language and some Arabic that I speak, but I didn't speak at home, but my son's always been intrigued about it. Uh, it helped them uh, connect better with the with the students. They got involved socially with the students because they understood the different cultures. Uh, so I think it was a plus uh, for the family here to uh, to to grow up in Maine and and to have that background for for us and for our kids. As part of the work that you do with the Armenian Cultural Association, you've brought in um, authors and speakers. You've done folk dance and musical performances. Talk to me a little bit about the Armenian culture and, and what types of things are important. 
Uh, food and music <laughs> and dance are very important. Uh, I think every time you put a little bit of food and some music, you can get the Armenians to get together. And uh, that's part of the culture that we wanted to keep. Uh, we That's why we've hosted some musical events. Uh, but also intellectually, uh, there's a lot of authors that talked about the Armenian genocide and the Armenian culture and how the Armenians grew up. So we've done a little bit of that as well uh, because we found that in Maine, the Armenians are second and third generation Armenians in Maine moved in right after the genocide. And as the generations pass by, the uh, Armenians assimilate more. So you end up families with half Armenian, quarter Armenian because they start marrying non-Armenian and, and it starts dispersing a little bit. So we found that, that that was an important part that rather than let it fade away, let's keep the Armenianism in everybody who is, has part Armenian. And, you know, and you've noticed also in the last 15 years, all around the United States, people are beginning to connect a little more with their cultures, whatever that is. And so the timing was right for that. And, uh, and so we, we focus on culture, we focus on uh, music, and food every chance we get. Uh, we've done, Annie did a couple of cooking classes for Armenians so they can uh, learn certain things that they've heard from their grandmothers that used to do this or that and, and Annie kind of has a couple of classes and help them cook it and, and learn it. So we keep it fun and interesting. We tried to do language classes right in the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, for the kids. For the kids, which was a little difficult in trying to tie people down because I went to Saturday school to learn how to sp well speak we we both speak Armenian but to write and to read Armenian and um, I found that it was a lot more difficult to tie kids down here um, I gave four classes and it was barely enough to just you know get them to say a few words um, my my kids speak they don't speak very well but they do speak, and if they are put in a position where they have to speak, they both do beautifully. And I think that's true of just about any language. When, you're, um, when you've heard it, and you know what it's supposed to sound like, um, you can try harder, and you, can, you know what you're trying to say. And I find with our kids, that's really, that's really true. They, they both, when they go to Montreal, when they're speaking with their family, they speak Armenian. They can do it, but when they're at home with us, they speak English. So I think for us, starting the Armenian Cultural Association, and, and let's just say that there was an Armenian Cultural Association already here mm -hmm. in the How 70s and <coughs> 80s. Even, um, even before that. Even before say. that. Um, with a lot of big families mm -hmm. in um, It's called the Portland Portland. Armenian Club, I believe. <coughs> yes, and... Um, these families had great dances and different events um, that they could probably tell you more about, but um, we didn't have that. When we moved here, it was, we looked at each other and said, you know, so we're going to live in a state where we have nothing Armenian, absolutely nothing. Uh, we met one family, mm -hmm. and through that family met a couple of different people. We honestly thought we were the only Armenians in the state <laughs> for a little while. Um, but as soon as we found this family and we became like family with them. Um, and we learned about the history of Armenians The history here and, and other families who had made a difference here. Mm -hmm. And we ended up um, we decided starting to this. continue. Yeah. yeah. We, we started uh, the Armenian Cultural Association and, and then said, okay, now what? You know, let's, let's get some lists together. You know, who's here? 
what can we do? And I think our first, our first event was the picnic, right? In, uh, at Two Lights. Mm -hmm. I believe that was our first one. And we thought we'd get 20, 30 people and 100 and something showed more. up. More, th right? That was one of the bigger ones. There were over 300 people that came in. Well, we, we had too many people for the park, people, yeah. basically. So and I think what brought us together the first time was when we put the monument on Cumberland oh Avenue. Yeah, There's a small amazing. monument commemorating the Armenian Genocide. It's right in front of the, uh, the uh, Church of the Immaculate Conception on Cumberland Avenue. And that was the first event we put together because the groundwork was already laid. They had begun talking to the city. The city agreed to give us a plot of the land. The Portland Club had. And we came in and we decided, let's finish this project with them. And, and that was the first event where we had a couple of hundred people show up uh, when we first did the inauguration of the monument. So that kind of started going and then we started doing a picnic. And then from then on every year we do, we try to do two, maybe three events every year. Yeah, we've got a great group of people with us now. I mean, for a very long time, um, it was just the two of us trying to kind of push through some different um, events and last I think it's probably about three uh, probably about five years we've got quite a few people that help us um, which you know you just you can't do this alone you need other people um, in one form or another and uh, the support that we've got right now is is quite amazing um, and we love it yeah. we love the, the 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 discussions we have what we can do and what we can't do and um, what we should bring forth. Yeah. I find it fascinating that, um, Gerard, you went into the hospitality business and Annie, you do interior design. Um, so both of you are very much about the creating of home, whether it's home away from home or mm -hmm. home in home. <laughs> and well put. <laughs> And it's so interesting that you, you're from, your family was sort of dispersed, and now you come to Portland and you are very consciously making your this your home. But at the same time, you're pulling in international pieces. You know, you're designing in mm -hmm. Los Angeles and New York and Boston, Annie and Gerard. Of course, you with the Portland Harbor Hotel and all the properties that you're a part of. People are coming from everywhere, and you're working with people internationally. Mm -hmm. So it's this interesting blending of things that both of you have brought into your lives. It is, and and in the hotel side of it, definitely uh, it helps connect with with many people from across the world that I tend to see, and uh, that's part of that hospitality that I've enjoyed. Uh, that's one of the reasons I went into the hotel business. It's uh, it seems it's part of my personality, and I enjoy it. That's the part I enjoy. So I think having that international flair or background from living different places and bringing the culture uh, certainly help our family life, but also help our life here and people around us. Yeah, I think for me it's um, every space I create, I find, and a lot of people have actually said this to me, I feel like part of the space has some kind of influence from my Middle Eastern or um, ethnic background. Um, it, it's in a very small way, but I find that uh, people like it. I just finished a beautiful uh, place on Manjoy Hill and interestingly enough the powder room had this beautiful wallpaper and the homeowner said it, it brought a little bit of you into our house which was <laughs> really nice it yeah. was really nice like that how did people find out about the Armenian Cultural Association of Maine 
online we have uh, we have a website it's uh, Armenian uh, Armenians and usually we post all of our events we also have a newsletter uh, people can sign up for a newsletter and we keep them uh, posted on all the different events that are going on and of course people can see um, the work that you do Annie in Maine Home Design mm -hmm. and the work that you do Gerard featured often in Maine Magazine, Old Port Magazine sometimes Maine Home Design um, this has been really interesting for me, really fascinating, having known both of you for a while to know this other layer, this other piece of your background. I really appreciate your coming in Thank you. and talking to me about Thank this. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Really. It's a pleasure. Truly. We've been speaking with Gerard and Annie Kalajian, who are the founders of the Armenian Cultural Association of Maine. Gerard is the general manager of the Portland Harbor Hotel, Diamond's Edge Restaurant and Marina, and the newly opened Inn at Diamond Cove on Great Diamond Island. And Annie is the owner of Annie K Designs, LLC. I appreciate your taking the time to be here. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Pleasure. You've been listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 241, Intercultural Understanding. Our guests have included Pius Ali, Gerard Kalajian, and Annie Kalajian. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love Main Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love Main Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see my running, travel, food, and wellness photos as Bountiful One on Instagram. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love Main Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love Main Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our intercultural understanding show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love Main Radio is made possible with the support of Berlin City Honda, The Rooms by Harding Lee Smith, Maine Magazine, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music have been provided by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producer is Kelly Chase. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasson. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Susan Grisanti, and Dr. Lisa Belay. For more information on our host's production team, main magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com. Here's an excerpt from Lisa's interview with Dr. David Salco from next week's program. When I think about sleep medication, I think about the patients who often will tell me that um, even on the prescribed dose, the next day they feel hungover, and it's less likely that they can actually perform the jobs that they're doing. I even worry a little bit about them driving. So often what we're told that we should prescribe as doctors is far more than what most people need. And it's something that we can really do on a fairly short-term basis just to break whatever cycle that is until they get into a better pattern. That's exactly it, to get into a better habit. And they may need a trigger for a while to reset that habit. But um, what I've noticed over time, though, is we will often pull out the sledgehammer when we might need just a finer tool. Um, alternative medicine does provide us a lot of windows of opportunity, um, acupuncture, aromatherapy, these might seem, you know, more subtle, massage therapy, things like that, that could help institute a better cycle of sleep for people, a better restful state, meditation. Those are all very, very, very powerful, um, but they take time. They take time for people to learn them. They take time for people to use them as a routine. And, and all those 
alternative things would apply as well to um, the management of pain. Um, everybody has an individual or subjective experience with pain, but we also have the ability with our mind to control how we feel in certain situations. And based on how we've lived, that's the track record that's set before us. And um, that can be that can be changed, it can be worked with, it can be altered. It's just about creating a new a new loop, a new habit, a new experience. I find it um, really very uh, encouraging that there are three of us in the Brunswick area who are physicians, you and Dr. Cindy Duchesne and myself, and we all practice acupuncture, and each of us have been doing acupuncture for a number of years. And so having that uh, kind of creeping into the medical mainstream um, it makes me feel good because now we're offering people that something that might actually help their lives in a bigger way than let's just deal with the symptom. Well, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, it might have been odd to even suggest acupuncture to a patient, and now it is more mainstream. We know how many people are using alternative uh, medicines and alternative treatments, and they do provide good relief, and they do provide... Uh, I'll say individual success, even if there's not some gigantic 10,000-person study that says it's going to work. Um, we've seen a lot of individual success with that, and it's always good to offer people more options, more opportunities. Uh, if you limit yourself to one or two choices, you're very unlikely to be successful over time with patients, and that's where the relationship of medicine goes. Somebody can come and see you, and if you only have two options for headache, you know, you're, you're going to be out pretty quick. Um, you have to continue to go back and redefine the problem, redefine what successes they've had, what failures they've had, and try to come up with new solutions. And that's, I think, the challenge of family medicine now is to integrate more of that, is to integrate more of the lifestyle, the things we hear about functional medicine, the things that we know about alternative treatments into uh, people's lives so they can have those good skills and have those good um, you know, we'll call them self-adapting skills to, to be able to manage their problems. We've been talking about acupuncture, but there are also doctors um, who for a long time have been practicing what, what's called osteopathic manipulative medicine or manual medicine, uh, in addition to chiropractors who are doing um, the same sort of manipulative medicine, and often bringing together something like acupuncture with something like OMT or OMM manipulative medicine can be really... Um, life-changing, I think, for patients. You're right. When somebody has the opportunity or has a successful um, acupuncture or even OMT session and they feel, uh, even if it's for a moment or a few days or a few weeks, that their pain is more manageable or better or that they're able to do some of the things that they didn't used to be able to do or they can successfully do their job, take care of their kids, manage their life, that's way more powerful than any pill will ever be. Um, and it's not something they have to think about how to cope with. Uh, people that take a pill or something, it's that moment they look for it to wipe everything away. Whereas when you've taught them a skill with meditation or they've been able to have OMT and some manual muscle therapies, they go, wow, I can, I can do some of this myself. And they can actually correct some of the malalignments and the other problems that they've been carrying for years. So that can be very useful for um, for actually getting to the base of their problem, I think. Another two kind of foundational things that you and I both incorporate into our practices are um, 
discussion of diet and discussion of exercise. Because exercise, if you can get past an acute pain flare, exercise over the long term actually has been shown to be helpful for chronic pain issues for things like fibromyalgia. Um, but diet is also important. You referred to functional medicine, and this is a very specific way. Thank you for listening to Love Main Radio. We do hope you'll join us next week. Visit us at lovemainradio.com for more information.